Sometimes when you come across young children who are fighting, it becomes evident pretty quickly that they're not fighting over anything that really matters. You know, they're upset because he's got his hand on my side of the car, or she keeps looking at me, or they're fighting over this toy from McDonald's that costs about five cents. And at that point in time, you say, you know, this is not worth fighting about. Stop fighting. We're looking at a contrast, a fight really that's going on in our day between creation and evolution. Last week, we we talked about the nature of that conflict. Tonight, I want to really think about, is this even a fight worth having? What are we really fighting about? Does this matter? What's the significance of this conflict? And be as we begin to answer that question, I want in some ways to, to review, but also to, to think more fully about what it would mean if evolution is true. And, and just to be clear, when I'm talking about evolution, I'm, I'm saying that this world that exists now started in the past with uh, some type of major event, often referred to as the Big Bang or, or something like that, some type of thing that got uh, matter into this world and then through... Uh, a long process of mutation and natural selection, we eventually arrived at the state in which we are today. Typically, trillions of years in the universe, billions of years of life. Now we are here today. And if that is true, as opposed to what we've been reading in Genesis, that God made the world in six days, if instead evolution's true, well, there is no God. Evolution was really put forward as an understanding of the world came from because it was basically saying, well, if there is no God, where did the world come from? That's what evolution really was about. And so there is no God if evolution is true. And that means there is no purpose in life. If you ask the question, why am I here? The answer is, it's just a pure accident. It's just chance. It happened to be this way. In the words of of one prominent proponent of uh, evolution, it might seem as if there's order and design, but it's just a blind watchmaker. No one's really there. No one's driving anything. You just happened to be here, and so you have no purpose in life. And there is no morality. There is no right or wrong. That life is not valuable because we got here through countless numbers of deaths. People, uh, species uh, came into existence and fell out of existence. And this has happened over and over and over again. And so there's no real value to any kind of life, certainly not to human life. And therefore, lawlessness can dominate our culture. That there is no ultimate standard to guide us in how we are to live or to judge us in light of how we live. And tied with that, death is simply a necessary part of life. That death just always happens. And there is no escape from death. In the words of one evolutionary proponent, William Provine, the former professor of history and biology at Cornell University, an article in which he was talking about the fact that evolution is contrary to what the Bible says, said this, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods. 
no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end for me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. No inherent moral or ethical laws exist, nor are there any absolute guiding principles for human society. The universe cares nothing for us, and we have no ultimate meaning in life. Now, as I've been trying to say as we've worked through the the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, that the Bible would teach the opposite of all of those things. That there is purpose, there is a God, there is meaning, there is morality. That life has value. And all that flows from the fact that God created us and God created all things. Now, there are some in our day who say, you know, We can believe in evolution. We just have to throw God in the mix. We can believe everything evolution teaches. We simply have to say, God's the one who ultimately got this process started. And so if we say that God used evolution, then we have avoided all the problems. And this is often called theistic evolution as opposed to atheistic evolution. Atheistic evolution is there is no God because it's all just natural. Theistic evolution comes in and says, well, how about we just say there is a God? And he initially started things. But in theistic evolution, everything we've been studying in Genesis didn't really happen. It's myth, it's legend, it's designed to to teach us some kinds of truths. But there was no literal Adam and Eve that was made. God didn't really do any of the things that's described in chapters 1 to 3. So I want to spend the rest of our time this evening considering what difference does that make? If we say, okay, God got things started and everything happened in light of evolution, does it matter? And I think it really does matter. That this is an issue that doesn't just affect our understanding of Genesis 1 to 3. It's an issue that actually affects our understanding of the whole storyline of Scripture. And I think if we... If we teach and believe theistic evolution, there are several key doctrines that end up being undermined or ultimately destroyed. And the first is the inspiration of Scripture itself. If you would take your Bibles and open up to Genesis 1, probably be turning a few different places, but we want to start here in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read just verses 26 and 27 for now. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now you read that and what does that seem like happened? That God made man and woman. He created them. We'll read it. You can read in chapter two. We'll look at that, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks that he took and he formed man from the dust of the ground. He took Adam and he took a rib from Adam to form Eve, to be a helper that was suitable for Adam. And Jesus himself affirmed this truth. Go to Matthew chapter 19. 
Matthew 19 and verse 4. Now, Jesus is actually dealing with the question about divorce, but he rightly goes back to creation to see God's original design. And so what does he say? Matthew 19, 4. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so Jesus looks to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to say, this is how God made men and women. This is his design. And if theistic evolution is true, we'd have to say, but that's not really what happened. That God never actually formed Adam from the dust of the ground. God didn't actually create Eve from Adam's rib. In fact, Adam and Eve were not even the first human beings. And perhaps Adam and Eve never really existed. But those who teach theistic evolution, because what evolution teaches is that over time you had increasingly human-like creatures that eventually developed into what we have as humans today. And so those who teach theistic evolution either say Genesis 1 to 3 is all just kind of a story to help us to think about the idea of sin. Or they say, at some point in time, there's a whole bunch of humanoid creatures and God took one male and one female and said, you are now Adam and Eve. Which means they were born. They both had human parents. Which is the exact opposite of what Genesis 1 and 2 would teach. They had no human parents. God directly made them. They were never babies. They were made as, as adults fully functioning, mature creation. And so theistic evolution begins to undermine the inspiration of Scripture. Begins to say, yes, people who read Genesis thought this is what happened, but really this isn't what happened. And we didn't understand any of that until a couple hundred years ago. And then we came to see that actually Scripture was not teaching what happened, but merely giving us thoughts and ideas and theological truths. Additionally, in theistic evolution, Adam and Eve were never sinless human beings. Because in evolutionary thought, from the very beginnings of humanoid, human-like creatures, you had violence and you had fighting. This is the nature of evolution. It is a quest for survival. And so long before Adam and Eve came onto the scene, you had human-like creatures who were doing morally evil things. And Adam and Eve themselves were never sinless human beings. They were made just like every other humanoid. And they acted just like every other humanoid. In addition, God did not directly create the things that we saw in, in, chapter, in day five and day six, in which he's making the birds and the fish and the land animals. He never actually made any of those things. He just made matter and then got things moving along. As we saw a few weeks ago, day seven, when God stops and rests, that never happened because there weren't six days in which he was creating something. And so there was no seventh day in which he stopped and rested. And all of these things begin to undermine our confidence in what scripture says. 
that begins to chip away at the idea that God's word is without error because it is God's word. Secondly, this understanding of theistic evolution undermines the unity of the human race. That from a biblical perspective, there is only one race. That we are all humans. That we all come from one ancestor. There's a common descent from Adam and Eve to all other people. But in evolutionary thought, Adam and Eve weren't the first two humans. You had a whole bunch of other humanoids out there. Which then means you had some humans that didn't really come from Adam and Eve. And that's why in evolutionary thought, it very easily leads to ideas of saying, well, some people are just superior to others. That's why you have thoughts like eugenics. Let's look at DNA. Let's look at genetics and say, which humans are better than others? Because that's the whole point of evolution. And then let's figure out which people are better suited for survival. And perhaps some people aren't quite as valuable as others. In a biblical perspective, everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone has the same ancestry. Everyone is equally worthy because they are people made in the image of God. A third truth that theistic evolution undermines is the uniqueness of mankind. As I, I, I'm using this language of humanoids because you have to kind of wonder, when does someone actually move from being animal to being human? And is there really a significant difference? In evolutionary thought, there isn't. We're simply evolved animals. And therefore, we would have no rights that animals don't have. There's nothing significant about us. I remember thinking about this. Some of you may remember a few years ago, at the Cincinnati Zoo, there was a gorilla named Harambe who uh, ended up being killed because a young child fell into uh, the gorilla uh, cage there. And uh, Harambe started throwing the child around, and so they, they put him down. And, and many people were up in arms. And one of their points was saying, why is this child any more valuable than this gorilla's life? And without scripture, what kind of case can you make? You're left with saying something like, well, that child maybe could have developed into a creature that had greater rational capacity and greater moral capacity. That that child maybe could have done things that the gorilla could not at this point in time. But that's where you're, you're talking about function. You're talking about value being tied to what you can do. Not the simple fact that it was a child versus a gorilla. Because in evolutionary theory, there can be no distinction between these things. Yet from a biblical perspective, there clearly is a distinction. Only people are made in the image of God. It sets them apart from every other aspect of creation. A fourth issue that comes into play in evolutionary thought is the effects of sin on this world. We're not there yet, but in a few weeks, we'll be in Genesis 3. And there we'll see the account of Adam and Eve's sin and their first sin. And part of what happened as a result of that sin is because Adam and Eve were set up as God's viceroys, as God's co-regents. 
They were set up over all of creation. That when Adam sinned, it affected all of creation. That there was a curse now that came upon the created order. That now there would be thorns and thistles. Now there would be death. Now there would be pain and childbearing. Now there would be conflict and enmity. And yet, when we got to the end of of chapter one and we, we saw God's work of creation, he looks at everything and he says, this is all very good. This is all perfect. This is all wonderfully made. And yet, in theistic evolution, sin and death and disease and destruction were around for billions or trillions of years before Adam and Eve ever came on the scene. And so death is not the result of sin. Death is just something that God put into creation itself. Which I think begins to push, undermine biblical teaching about God's goodness and God's justice. <laughs> because if we ask today, why is there death? The answer from scripture is because of Adam's sin. You would go to Romans chapter 5 so you can see this. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Why is there death in this world? The answer is us. We sinned. We rebelled against God. We failed to honor him as God. We failed to give thanks to him. And therefore, this world that God made as a good, perfect world is now a fallen world. And before sin came, there was no death. Before sin came, everything was perfect. But not an evolutionary thought. In theistic evolution, things have been messed up from the very beginning. That God actually never made a sinless human. The biblical account is Adam and Eve were made without sin. And yet they chose to sin. And therefore sin had its effects on all this world. But in theistic evolutionary thought, their sin is God's fault. He made them sinful. He made this world the way it is. And so we begin to question his goodness and his justice and his wisdom. Yet from a biblical perspective, it's very clear. Death is not natural. Death is an intruder. Death was not part of God's good original creation. Death came through one man's sin. When sin entered the world, that's when death entered the world. And because this world started with no death, when God redeems this world, it will end with no death. That just as when he made things, it was all very good. When he is done with his new creation, it will all be very good.
No more death. No more sin. No more natural disaster. That we can look at our world today and we can see things like cancer. We can see things like floods. We can see things like pandemics. And we can say, this is not part of God's original design. This is not the way things are supposed to be. This world is corrupted because of mankind's sin. But one day all of it will be gone. And if I could just briefly say something, occasionally I'll see people wrestle with this idea that, that before the fall, there was no death. And they'll say things well, like you know, certain scientific processes, certain things have to require death in order for things to grow, in order for things to survive. How is it possible not to have death before Adam and Eve sinned? And I will tell you, I don't know. I don't know how it's possible to not have death before Adam and Eve sinned, even more than it's possible not to have death in eternity. I remember I had someone ask me one time, so in, in heaven, someone trips and they fall, they just don't break a bone? So I don't know, maybe they never trip and fall. But God is certainly capable of having a functioning world without any of these problems that we see in our world today. That's the world he had when he first made it. That is the world he will have when he is done with his new creation. And finally, we see that in theistic evolution, there actually is no possibility of salvation and resurrection. In Romans 5, we read verse 12. Look down at verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And what we see throughout Romans 5 is a comparison between the first Adam and the last Adam. That Adam is set up as our representative so that when he sinned, his sin is given to all of us. It it is credited to all of us. It is imputed to us. He was our federal head. He was a representative and his sin counted for us. And then Christ is set up as the head of a new humanity. And in this new humanity, all those who are in Christ receive his obedience. It is righteousness is counted to them. His good works are laid to their account so that now they are viewed by God as righteous and holy. But if there was no Adam, if Adam was not the head of the human race, if his sin did not plunge all humanity into sin, then how can Christ possibly be the head of a new human race? You cannot have Christ and his obedience given to all those who are in Christ unless you have Adam and his disobedience given to all those who are in Adam. Because the point is, in humanity, we are a race that we are all connected together. That's what Hebrews 2 points to. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. Why? Because angels are not a race. 
Angels don't have a common ancestor. Angels have no head. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, those who are in Adam, he as their representative head, his sin is their sin, and therefore they now die because they are in Adam. But what's the good news? So also in Christ, all will be made alive. And if you buy into evolutionary thought, you have completely undermined what scripture says about salvation. There is no atonement. There is no resurrection. Because there is no Adam. And therefore there can be no Christ. And so we ask it, is this something worth fighting about? And the answer is absolutely. Because if we give this up, we're giving scripture up. As 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised from the dead. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, we have no hope. We are of all people most to be pitied. There was an Adam. There was a Christ. And just as an Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true from the first word to the last. Amen. We thank you that you have revealed your wisdom, your goodness, and your justice in making the world as you did. You have demonstrated your wisdom and your goodness and your justice in redeeming and saving this world. We long for the day in which that work will be completed. In which death and sin will be no more. No more sickness, no more sorrowing, no more suffering. We long for that time. So we sing at this time of year in the Christmas carol that we want to see your blessings known just as far as the curse is found. We thank you that this hope is certain and it is true. We can trust what you have said. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.